Today's uh, scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 10. If you'd like to follow along, they're on page 263 in the Bibles. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had many flocks and herds, but the poor men had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite and with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is the word of the Lord. Um. I am taking red envelopes for any of you that are looking to get rid of any more. Yeah, quite the uh, chapter to go over on a new year, I know. It's uh, strange. Um, but here we are, chapter 12, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. So this, this is where we landed. Um, when you're looking at this transition from chapter 11 to chapter 12, you're going to notice a hurried pace in this transition when you're, you're reading this story. Um, it just kind of goes right into chapter 12 and right into Nathan and what Nathan has to say. So that this is kind of what we're going to do. We're, we're just going to jump right into this. It, it seems that the, the writer is anxious to share about the grace of God to David. When we look back to chapter 11, there's this very key verb there that needs to be pointed out. I didn't point it out last week because I had another focus in mind last week. But I, I want to go back and focus on this word, and the word is sent, because it's used quite a bit. You find the word sent in verse 1 of chapter 11, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and this verb sent can be found a dozen times in chapter 11, 12 times, and seven out of the 12 times when that word is used, the word sent is used, David is the subject of the word over half the time, seven out of the 12 times. So chapter 11, verse 1, David sent Joab. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, David sent messengers. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab. Verse 12, David said to Uriah, I will send you back. Verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house. I bring this all up because in chapter 12, David's not sending anymore. David's not the guy in charge. David's not the one that's going to be doing all the commanding and telling people what to do and sending for them and anything like that. You'll notice what it is in chapter 12, verse 1. 
the Lord sent. That's it, David. You're clowning around. like that. That's it. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now we saw the grace of the Lord in chapter 11, verse 11, when David should have gotten a clue that God's grace was reaching out to him through Uriah. And here in verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the grace of God again reaching out to David, that God is not going to leave him alone, that God is not going to let him destroy himself. And it would be a very, very scary thing to think that God leaves us alone in our sin. We talked about that last week. And we also talked about it with King Hezekiah. And it's, it's this very scary thing to imagine that God leaves us to be, leaves us to our sin, leaves us to just destroy ourselves. And here we see God not leaving David to his sin, and he sends Nathan. Now, why did God use this story approach with David? Why did he use, use Nathan to tell him a story? Well, David is king. David is very powerful. And so you can just imagine Nathan comes in and says, like, King David, bam! Probably wouldn't end very well for Nathan. Probably, like, off with his head, right? He's just like, get him out of here. But you see, by telling this story, it's this kind of indirect approach that allows this conviction to sink in without giving space for David to, to rise up his defenses and get defensive about it. It allows him to think through the story, which is actually him in it, but it allows him to see it more clearly. And so Nathan describes the rich man with, with very, very few words in verse 2, and then he gives more details about the poor man in verse 3. And then he draws this contrast between the rich man and the poor man, and like many of us, it's easier to see what's going on with ourselves when we hear stories that are outside of ourselves. That there tends to be this inability to see what's directly in front of us when we're in it. And, and this is just human nature. You and I, we can go watch a movie and, and it's about some injustice and we can cry about it in the theater. And it really penetrates us in this story. But then you come out of the theater and then you don't even think about it anymore. But the thing that you come out to see is, is directly in front of us in terms of the injustice. But we don't act on it, but then we felt all of it in the theater. So whether it's some sort of an oppression or if it's some sort of homelessness or some sort of addiction to drugs or whatever it is, you feel it in the theater and, and then you walk out and, and you see those things around you, but you're kind of cold to those things. It's directly in front of you though. But there's something to be said about story and there's something to be said about this indirect approach to things. David gets caught up in, in Nathan's story, and then he starts to get self-righteous. He starts to condemn, and he starts to judge that rich man in the story in verses 5 and 6, not knowing that he is condemning and judging himself. And since he did that, it kind of opens the way for Nathan to kind of share about how David fits into this story. It kind of clears the way that he could say these things to David now without getting himself killed. You are the man. Not like, you are the man. Not like that. Like, you're that guy. You're, you're the rich guy. You took the ewe lamb from the poor guy. That's you. Verse 7. And what Nathan did 
man, that takes some skill. You, you can imagine when, when Nathan is kind of sent by God to say these things to David. He's freaked out. It's like, no way. That guy will kill me. And so how much skill that Nathan had to be like, you know what? I'm going to do it like this. And that's what grace requires sometimes. Sometimes from us, when, when you want to talk to somebody and tell them about something they're doing wrong, sometimes it requires that skill. That you, you can't just go in there like a bull in a china shop and just start like wrecking things and, and start accusing and start pointing your finger. You got to use some skill. Can't always be direct because direct doesn't always work well. Direct can make people defensive, angry. And that indirect way, it, it takes some skill to help someone see themselves. To help them come to their own conclusion that they're wrong. And the gospel is, is really, really good at pointing out to us, you are the man, you are the woman. And the gospel is always about you and me, and, it, and it's set up by this really skillful grace. It's a grace that is very clever. It's a grace that is, that is artful. And it's this grace that hits you when you don't expect it to. And it makes its way to us in very unexpected ways. That, that grace is sometimes a, a very sneaky thing. It just kind of sneaks up on you. How many of you has this happened to? That, that grace just kind of like, bam! He does this with my kids all the time. You know, like, I think I'm so righteous. I'm the parent. I'm telling them things. And then, boom! You're impatient. You're not loving. You're not kind. You're not patient with them. And he uses this grace in this really clever way from, like, the weakest people in our lives and then he just kind of confronts us and puts this mirror in front of us and says like this is who you are the man you are the woman and that's the beauty of grace it's skillful it's artful it's, it's clever it's sneaky the other thing is it's it's really serious it's very severe let's look back at uh, verses 7 and 8 here verses 7 and 8 we have God's grace to David Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He's sharing past grace with him. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Like, if you just asked, why are you taking? Why are you killing? Why are you stealing? Why are you committing adultery? Why are you coveting? If you just asked me, I would have done it for you. Am I not a gracious God? But no, David takes Uriah's wife as if to tell God that what you've given me, it's not good enough. It's not enough. I want to take for myself. And just wanting more and not content with the abundance of what God has already given him when God gave him so much, God was so gracious to him. And then here's this accusation by Nathan, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? 
to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And here's the retribution. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That's the retribution. Back to verse 9. David despised the word of the Lord. And then verse 10. David despised the Lord. What happens when we despise the word of the Lord, when we despise the Lord? We ruin our lives. When you look at verse 9 again, you have struck down Uriah, taken his wife, killed him. You don't just ruin your life, you ruin other people's lives too when you despise the word of the Lord. You destroy people's lives when you despise the Lord. This retribution from verses 10 through 12, we will see all of this happen from this point all the way through to chapter 20. We're going to see this retribution for the next eight chapters. And verses 10 through 12 will be a reminder to us as we're going through those chapters in the next few months as to what happens through all of those chapters through 20. And we have to keep in mind these verses, 11 and 12, as we go through those next chapters. Back to grace being a very serious thing, a very severe thing in because when we think of grace, we think of grace as being nice, right? That it's, it's, it's so nice and it's pleasant, and that's not the case. Grace is not always nice. And you can't have grace and nice be synonyms, because grace can be infuriated. It can be furious. And God can be gracious and he can be furious. And sometimes God shows his grace in these very serious ways. Sometimes God isn't nice with his grace. And it's a way to help us see it. It's a way for us to remember it. Off to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not Die. And so David here is confessing his sin to the Lord. In Hebrew, it's actually just two words. And so it is a very succinct, it is a very brief confession. And if you want more background into what David's thinking, into, into what, what his thought process is in all of this, you read Psalm 51. That's the psalm you read to get a, a deeper understanding of this. But here in this narrative... It's two words in the Hebrew. It's very brief. Then Nathan tells David that the Lord has forgiven David and that David won't die. Because if you go back and, and look at Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, it's a death sentence. David's crime for killing Uriah is a death sentence. It's capital punishment. He is not supposed to be alive. Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22... You're supposed to be dead, David. But again, we see God's grace here, even though David did a very serious crime. 
And so David confesses, he acknowledges this guilt, and, and he will not face the capital punishment for his crime. And for some of us, this might make us angry because it just doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem like David paid the price for what he did, that there has to be something more. Look at what he did. He killed Uriah. Church, sometimes this is a problem that we have. Sometimes we think people aren't facing what they deserve. And what they deserve is something more than what they've already experienced themselves in terms of this retribution. And sometimes people aren't satisfied with what has happened to a person that has wronged others. And what they face needs to be more. We don't know what it is, but it just has to be something more. They, they haven't paid enough. And so some people want to see David suffer more. They want to see him more miserable, to be in more anguish, to be more sorrowful, to be more in pain, in distress for what he did. They want to see him grovel. Is that First John? First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, which David did, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we need to do more? But oftentimes, this is what we want. We want people to do more. And they want to see people in misery over what they did or more sorrowful and if in anguish and, and misery as if it has some atoning value to it. And thank God the atonement has already been taken care of by Jesus. And it's not about how intense one's sorrow is that brings about forgiveness. It's the confession of our sins that leads us to forgiveness. And David confessed. He did that. And just because David's confession is so brief, it's two words in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean that it wasn't sincere. See, the, the words are few. And just because the words are few, actually that can be a sign of sincerity. A sign that David is truly broken over what he did because he's not making any excuses. He's not hiding. He's not reasoning as to why he did what he did. He's not, he's not looking for a way out. He's not blaming somebody else. He just simply acknowledges what he did. I have sinned against the Lord, full stop. I'm not going to reason all this other stuff. And grace led him to this confession. Verse 14, Nevertheless, because by his deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So David does not die, but another one does. Is there perhaps a suggestion here that the death of another is a substitute for David? That God forgives guilt, but he doesn't overlook the consequences over the wrong that was done. That he cleanses the defilement of sin, but he still disciplines. And David's forgiveness was free, but it was costly at the same time. Could this be a picture 
of what God has done for us, what we've experienced for ourselves in that the son of David, Jesus, is our substitute. Carrying on in verse 15, Then David went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And so David's servants, they don't get David at all. They don't understand what David is doing because for a week, David's interceding for this child. He's fasting. He lays on the ground for, for seven days. And then David's servants thought, you know, if David is like this when the, when the child is alive, what's he going to be when he finds out that the child is dead? Well, David asks if the child is dead. He finds out that he is. So, so David then cleans up. He, he worships the Lord. And after worshiping, he asked for food. And his servants are just puzzled by his behavior. Verse 22, he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord, and you notice that the Lord sent a message by Nathan the prophet, and so here we see God as the one sending again. Verse 22 shows David's persistence in the intercession. That David thought maybe verse 14 won't happen if I intercede and I'm going to try. And maybe he thought about Moses in Exodus chapter 32. That when those people worshiped the golden calf, God said he was going to destroy those people, start over again with Moses. But Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and they weren't wiped out. That Moses didn't take what God said as his final word, but as this opportunity to intercede for the people. And maybe this is what David was thinking, that this was an opportunity to intercede and pray. And yes, God said this, but, but I'm going to try. Just like Moses did in, in Exodus 32, I'm going to try to save this boy. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Here's the beautiful thing. He knows that God is gracious. He knows that. He knows the Lord to be gracious and that graciousness is one of the traits of God. That even in 
our sin, even when we did the wrong thing, God is gracious. Do you have this knowledge about God? That even if things aren't going great for you, because of your own actions, because of sin of the world and things that have happened to you, but that God is still gracious. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, even in our sinfulness, even when it was my fault. You see, David knew God's nature. In God's nature, he is gracious. What do you think about God? You look at him and like, how can you let this happen? Or I don't deserve it because I, I've done these terrible things. Do you know God to be a God of grace? That David knew the character of God and that God can't help but to be gracious. And we can see clearly that the, the only king who is perfect is Jesus. We can see clearly that David is not perfect. Even Hezekiah, who was so great, is not perfect. And like David, we all need grace. That God's grace is greater than any sin that we can possibly commit. Verse 25, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and it was, in, it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and sent them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and the people returned to Jerusalem. In chapter 11, verse 1, it, it's interesting how this story closes because this kind of all started because David remained in Jerusalem when he was supposed to be out in battle. That was an issue. He didn't go out to battle when he should have. And so this entire event and all this that has happened is framed by this war with the Ammonites. And these, these events happening are, are the context of, of war with the Ammonites. And so Joab has been at war with these guys. He knows that, hey, I'm about to take this over, and you got to get out here and be here. You, you have to fight, because if you don't join the fight, all the people are going to realize you've been in Jerusalem the whole time which is what you're not supposed to do as king. You're supposed to be out here with us, and they're going to say, I won the fight. And you're going to lose your kingdom. And so Joab's just this very loyal, faithful general to David, just telling him, David, this is a bad look for you. you got to come out here. you got to join this. And David is victorious there. And then he returns to Jerusalem. So he comes out to fight, then he goes back to Jerusalem. And when we look at this story, oftentimes people focus on the sexual sin of David. Or they focus on David's cover-up of sins. You know, that's what this story is about. It's not those things at all. This is a story about what happens when we resist the reign of God 
in a desire for our own moral autonomy, that we think we're right. And it all goes back to Genesis 3 again, to think that we can discern between what is good and evil. And this is true for you and me as individuals. This is true for our church. This is true for our city, state, nation, world. That we resist the reign of God and we desire for our own moral autonomy to think that we know what is good and what is evil. And this is a story about rejecting God and not submitting to the rule of God. It's a story about seeking independence from God. It's a story about us being trapped in our own messes that we've created ourselves in our own sinfulness and decisions and actions that we've made and our inability to get ourselves out of those things. That we make things worse. But God, but God in his grace pulls us out, delivers us. And this is a story about what displeased the Lord. Right? You go back one chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Joab is bothered by what David told him to do. So there's a displeasing here. But then you go to verse 27 and it reads this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. How often do we justify displeasing the Lord just like David did with Joab? Do not let this matter displease you. The sword, you know, devours now, it devours now another. Like, it's, it, it's what happens. People die. It's not a big deal. Just kill them. And the real issue isn't us justifying those things. The real issue is what, in life, whether we, what we do pleases or displeases the Lord. It is really about verse 27. What pleases and displeases the Lord. Sin displeases the Lord, but confession brings about forgiveness, cleansing from the Lord. And we know by God's grace, character, that he is gracious, who looks to shower us with grace. May we please the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I'm sure there are people here who have sinned, who are attempting to cover their sin, who are attempting to justify it, who are attempting to blame, whatever it may be, may they recognize your grace, Lord, that even the sin that they've committed is not beyond your reach, and you love your children, that you chastise them, that you are serious with them, that you discipline them. We just ask, Lord, that you would never leave us. And so, God, um, as we learn from David's story here about simply confessing to you and you are faithful to forgive us our sins, 
May we do that. May we just simply do that if we are in that sin separated from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone is, is wanting, needing prayer, Susanna is in the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you. And Mike is in the left front pew here. And at this time, we're going to take communion together. So if you have communion elements, let's take that out. If you don't, just raise your hand. We'll, we'll get those elements over to you. And that first element, the wafer that is on top of this post-COVID packet. This wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ, broken for you and for me. Another sign of grace by God. Uh, a beautiful, tangible symbol to show us Jesus is with us, broken for you and me. We take this in remembrance and celebration of Christ. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us, costing his life in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Son of David, substituting for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.